You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Bible reading today is from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who, has, who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amber. Well, as Daniel uh, mentioned, we're beginning a new series at the start of the year on prayer and conversations with God. And really, prayer is in the news. I don't know if you saw it this week, but on Monday night, American time, uh, an American footballer, gridiron player, Damar Hamlin, had a cardiac arrest after an innocuous tackle in a game uh, just the other day. This shocked everyone watching on TV. There's this horrible moments of, or minutes, an hour or so of people uh, trying to administer CPR to him, trying to revive him, taking him off to the hospital and all that stuff. And the game had to stop and they threw back to the studio and everyone's feeling very anxious and worrying and wondering what's going to happen to him. And in the middle of this, on one of the stations, ESPN, uh, they went back to the studio and, and there was a, a commentator, an expert commentator, a guy called Dan Orlovsky. And he was saying, look, we always say when things like this happen, certainly in America, they say thoughts and prayers to Damar and his family, those kinds of phrases, thoughts and prayers. And he said, look, we always say this, but why don't we actually do it right now? And so in the middle of the program on live TV, coast to coast, right across the States, he prayed. He bowed his head and quietly prayed this prayer. And it was a really beautiful prayer, very simple, but an elegant prayer. He prayed and acknowledged God's greatness. He humbly spoke about the need that they had and asked God to, to bless and protect Damar and his family. We just want to pray, he said, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, be with his family to give them peace. It's quite an extraordinary moment. Certainly in Australia, you can't even imagine someone praying on live TV. But here it was, millions of people seeing someone pray. And I think there's something beautiful about that moment too, because you sense the intimacy that this guy, Dan Olosky, has with God. The sense that he can approach this God who's this mighty and powerful and infinite being and ask him to intervene, to do something special, to, to heal this person. I think one of the best ways to learn about prayer is to see what other people pray. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, when I hear someone praying, I learn a lot about them, but I also learn about God and I learn about how to approach him. I think of the prayers that my dad used to pray when I was a little kid or the prayers that I've heard from pastors throughout my life or, or even just sitting in a small group Bible study with other people and, and someone prays. I, I learn so much about prayer and about God when I hear someone else pray. Uh, 
as I said, we're starting this new series on prayer. And what we're going to do is we're going to listen to other people's prayers. Uh, I'm going to start this series by thinking through the Lord's Prayer. It's my favourite prayer. It's actually pretty much the only prayer that I pray nowadays. I always pray this prayer, either the 70 or so words that make it up, or I use this prayer as a kind of structure for my prayers. Imagine all of the petitions, hallowed be your name and so on. Imagine that as like the, the, the branch, the, the big trunk of a tree. I kind of go along this and I branch off and explore what each petition means. And I found that it has transformed my prayer life. So I'm excited to share it with you today. And I want you to notice something here as well, the context of this prayer. The disciples in the reading, they come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. See, they've heard Jesus pray. They've heard him pray and they see that it's different to the way that they pray. There's an intimacy and there's a beauty and there's a, a significance in the way that he prays and they want to learn from him. See, sometimes we feel bad about our prayer life, but I wonder if it's partly because we just don't actually know how to pray. We've got the basic gist of how to pray, but we're not sure exactly what to say. And often our prayers, we sort of run out of steam or they feel a little bit insignificant or a bit meaningless or superficial. We're not sure if it's making any difference. I think the disciples probably felt similar. And then they were hearing Jesus pray. And so they say, oh, I want to pray like that. Teach us how to pray. And this is Jesus's answer. He's teaching them how to pray. The words that he's going to share with them are significant for them, but also for us. I think today we can learn some enormous and very valuable things about prayer because in the Lord's Prayer, we discover God's heart and his vision for us. So today, what I want to do is go through each of those petitions, branch by branch, so to speak, to explain what it means, what Jesus is saying, and how we can follow on in that prayer ourselves. And then at the end, I'm going to give a couple of general reflections. But first of all, let's start with the very first phrase of this prayer, our Father in heaven. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us, first of all, who we pray to. Now, this is absolutely crucial. You see, who we pray to explains why we pray, and it shapes how we pray. So you won't pray much or you won't pray properly unless you know who you're praying to. And God wants us to know that we pray to a God who is our heavenly Father. And that means that he is both good and great. What I mean is, first of all, he's good. He's, he's loving. He wants us to know that he is a Father. The infinite and eternal and amazingly big God wants us to know that he is our Father. The writer Albert Hayes says, the name suggests immediacy, familiarity, approachability, truth, respect, and love. God wants us to know that he is worthy of respect like a father, but he is also close to us and kind like a father, someone who wants to look after us. And he can because here's the second thing. He's not just good, he's great. So you could pray to your earthly father, I suppose, if you really wanted to. He might be able to provide you with daily bread but he's not going to be able to do a whole bunch more. He's not going to be able to forgive the sins that you're asking him to forgive, perhaps. He's not going to be able to make sure that it's sunny weather on your wedding day or anything like that. He probably can't even find you a car park. So if you pray to your earthly father, it won't do much good. But we can know that if we're praying to a heavenly father, we're praying to someone who is powerful, he's capable. John Stott writes, 
is not only good but great. The words in the heavens show us not so much where he is, but the authority and power at his command as the creator and ruler of all things. Thus, he combines fatherly love with heavenly power, and what his love directs, his power is able to perform. So we need to understand that when we pray, we pray to our heavenly Father, a God who is kind and powerful, the God who is good and great. Now, when I reflect on that, my instinct is is to praise him, to, to worship him. And so that leads beautifully to the very next phrase, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means to honour something and to treat it as holy, as something sacred and, and special and important, worthy of adoration. This petition then is about us worshipping God, acknowledging his greatness and then celebrating it. The Heidelberg Catechism writes, hallowed be your name means help us to truly know you, to honour, glorify and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them, your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy and truth. Help us to, to really know who you are, impress that upon us. Now, we hallow God's name because his name stands for him, for who he is. Uh, names express values, don't they? So we, we might name our child after an ancestor because we value family and, and our heritage. Or we might uh, choose a name that has a specific meaning because we want our child to grow into that. Uh, sometimes this is not always a wise thing. I remember working with a guy who was extremely white who named his son LeBron after LeBron James. And so there's this poor kid growing up in Scoresby who's like the most white LeBron in the world. But names have power. They represent our values and they come to represent a person. It's the same with God. His names express who he is, his identity, but also his character. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the name, in other words, means all that is true of God and all that has been revealed concerning him. It means God in all his attributes, God in all that he is in and of himself and God in all that he has done and all that he is doing. And actually, God has many names. We probably know some of the, the basic ones. He represents, he, he presents himself as Father, for instance. But he's also known as El Shaddai, God Almighty, or Jehovah, or Yahweh, the, the self-existent Lord, the great I Am who was and is and is to come. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. There's actually hundreds of these names. I used to run an internship program and, and one of the exercises I would do is I'd actually write down a list of God's names and there's literally about 300 names. And I invited people to kind of grab one of those names and to meditate on what it means. So this is a great way for us to, to kind of hallow God's name. In your prayers, pick one of God's names and think about it, meditate on that. What does it mean that God is my provider, Jehovah Jireh? R reflect on the goodness of that find your hope in that. Essentially, what we're doing is we're asking God to make himself known to us, for us to understand in a deeper and more profound way who he is. And then we're also praying that other people will start to hallow his name, see his glory. And that leads to the next petition. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I put these two phrases together because I think they belong together. The will is, is what we want. It's our deepest desire, our most instinctive and core yearning. 
And it's God's will that his, it's his greatest desire that his name be hallowed and his kingdom come, that all people recognise his greatness and submit to him, that all people worship him on earth just as they do in heaven. But that's not quite happening right now, is it? See, we have this strange reality where God is king, he's absolutely sovereign and over all things and in control of all things and worthy of worship, but not everyone recognises that. Uh, Sometimes we think about the the distinction between God's kingship and his kingdom. His kingdom extends over all people and all things, but his kingship is his direct rule or his reign in someone's life. That's not everywhere, is it? He rules over the world, but not all people are responding to him. He wants a direct rule and reign in someone's life. And so when we uh, pray this prayer, we're saying, we want to submit to your rule. Uh, Reign in my life. This is a, a pledge of allegiance. It's a prayer of submission. Reign in my life, in every decision that I make. May you be the voice that I'm listening to. But also we're praying that that kingdom, that reign will extend beyond us, that other people will come to submit to him as well and to worship him. Essentially then, when we pray this prayer, we're aligning ourselves with his will. God's will is for his name to be hallowed. And we're saying, we praise you. God's will is for him to reign. So we're saying, reign in me, make me a servant of your kingdom. Your plans will happen. Please make me a part of them. Now, if we stop for a moment and think about where we're at in this prayer, you might have noticed that it's all about God. We've reminded ourselves of who he is. We've spent time meditating on him, hallowing his name, worshipping him. And now we've, we're kind of aligning ourselves to his will. We're submitting to him. It's all about him. And we're seeing how big he is how glorious and impressive he is. He gets to define everything. His rule is absolute and we're submitting to that. And it would be easy at this point for us to feel like we're totally insignificant, that it is purely all about God and we don't sort of matter. It's just we've just got to get on with just doing whatever he asks us to do. But then I want you to see the very next thing that Jesus tells us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. What is God doing here? Well, God, the great king, is here asking us how he can serve us. We're his servants. He's the king. He's the absolute monarch of the universe. But here he is bending down, coming down to our level and saying, what do you need? How can I help? How can I serve you and bless you? Isn't that extraordinary? The God we worship wants to bless us and to give us everything we need. Martin Luther says of this petition that it's a prayer for everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, peace, basically anything that would make life good and happy. So when I get to this petition in my prayers, this is where I bring my needs to God my physical needs and my spiritual needs. I I basically go through my calendar, okay? I I know that I've got a a meeting coming up today with someone and I'm a bit anxious about it. Please give me wisdom, give me courage to say what needs to be said. Uh, I'm working on a sermon perhaps. 
Give me insight so that I can see your word and understand it and present it faithfully. I'm worrying about my kids because they're, they're, they're having a bit of trouble at school or there's a parent-teacher interview or something like that. And Just pray for my kids that they'll be blessed today. This is where I bring all of these things to God and ask him to bless it. And I ask this in boldness because I know that God loves to hear these prayers. See, some people are almost embarrassed to pray for these things. We sort of have this almost too spiritual view of prayer where we feel like we can't bring all of this little stuff to God. He doesn't want to be bothered with this or it's not spiritual enough. As Martin Luther says, that's utter nonsense. God loves to hear these things because he loves to provide for us. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you, just, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God loves to provide. So don't be embarrassed to ask him to do so. In fact, your willingness to do so is a great sign of your faith. H.B. Charles writes, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust that you can handle on your own. It's a good word. What are the things that we're just trying to do in our own strength? And what are the things that we are entrusting to God, asking him to give us the strength to do them? We need God in every aspect of our lives, so let's invite him into each aspect. Every time we pray this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we're reminded that God is the provider who loves to give our physical and our spiritual needs. And, of course, the, the most important spiritual need is the thing that we pray about next. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is, frankly, my least favourite part of the Lord's Prayer. I can really build up a head of steam before this bit, but I don't want to get to this bit. I don't want to be here. That's because sin is not a topic that we like to think about. We either don't want to confess sin because we want to keep doing it, or we're afraid to confess it because we're not sure that God will forgive us. But when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he included this moment of confession. So it's obviously very important, very important for us to grapple with the reality of sin, the sin we do and the sin that we suffer from other people. Now, you might have noticed that when, we, uh, when you pray the Lord's Prayer out loud, perhaps at a funeral or something like this, there's a whole bunch of variations when you get to this bit. Some people say trespasses, and everyone's saying it together. The S's go for about five minutes. Uh, some people say debts. Some people say sins. That's what we have here in Luke 11. You'll note that we have all of these different descriptions, these words. That's because sin is actually hard to define. It's, it's such a big issue. Trespass means that we, we're crossing over a boundary. A debt is the, the sense that we're not giving to God what he deserves. He deserves all worship and honour. We're failing to do that. We're in debt to him. These are all the, the different ways that we might describe sin. And we use words to describe sin too. But we tend to dumb them down. We tend to tone it down. So it's a mistake or it's a misjudgment or it's, it's an error. This downplays it. 
You see, we don't want to imagine that we're actually sinners. I read something recently about a soccer player a couple of years ago spat on an opponent, which is a, a vile thing to do, and he apologised on Twitter and said, today something took place that is not in my character. That's our temptation, right? When, when, when we do something wrong, we want to say, oh, this is out of character. But the Bible says it's not out of character, that our actions come out of our character, that all the stuff that we do, the, the wrong things that we do, come from the sin that's within us, the lust, the anger, the small-mindedness, the jealousy, the envy that we have of other people, that's in us. That's our character, and it comes out of us. And we have to confess this to God. See, we can't deny this. 1 John 1 says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We can't deny that we have sin. But the beautiful thing is that if we do confess it, God will forgive us. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, the very next verse, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel. This is the the message at the heart of Christianity. God knows that we are sinful, that we've rebelled against him, that we've trespassed, we've gone over the boundary, that we're a debtor to him because we haven't given him what he deserves. We've sinned, but he is willing to forgive it, no matter what it is. Jesus made that possible. He took our sins on himself to to carry and to bear and to deal with the justice that we deserve so that we can be set free from these sins. All we need to do is to ask for forgiveness, to turn back to him in sorrow and to entrust ourselves to Jesus. And if we do that, we'll be free from that guilt. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because they're dealt with in Jesus. And so Romans 8 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we give him our sin, he will take it away and we don't have to carry it anymore. But given that, why do we keep praying this prayer? Why do we keep asking God to forgive our sins if he's already done that? So Hebrews 10 says that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that that once you have come back to God and said sorry, really all of your sins from the past, the present, and even the future are forgiven. He doesn't see them anymore. So why would I have to keep asking him for forgiveness if he's already forgiven them? Well, J.I. Packer suggests that the answer lies in distinguishing between God as judge and God as father. See, the Lord's Prayer, he says, is a family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father, and though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, things will not be right between them and their father till they've said sorry and asked him to overlook the ways they've let him down. I mean, this is how it works with people, right? I mean, we're sensitive to the dynamics of the relationships that we have. If there's tension in a relationship, I'll try to resolve it. I'll I'll confess my sin to my wife, for instance, and I'll I'll say sorry, I'll resolve to do things differently. That's because I love the person and I feel close to them. Like when when I do the wrong thing in my marriage, if Anna doesn't bring out the certificate and and rip it up, our marriage isn't ended, but it is in a place where it's not as warm as it could be. And so I want to reconcile to her 
to, to restore that relationship. It's, it's absolutely safe in an objective sense. Now I want to experience it in a subjective sense. I want to feel close to her. And when I say sorry, then I do. And she forgives me. It's the same with God. Our status with him is secure. But when we walk away from him, when we do the wrong thing, we start to feel the distance between us. We don't, we don't want to read the Bible. We don't want to pray. We don't want to spend time with God. We're not enjoying him. But after a while, that doesn't, we're not satisfied with that. See, once you've experienced closeness with God, you want to have that all the time. And so you come back to him. You say sorry, and he forgives you afresh. He gives you the sense of closeness that you're looking for. I love Psalm 32. Uh, David, King David, is writing this psalm. And he's talking about a season in his life where he was walking against God and he felt convicted about this. He says, uh, you know, he, he says that my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's feeling the distance from God. He's feeling like God's not happy with him. And so he confesses his sin. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then he says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You set me free. You took away the feeling of guilt. And so many of the other parts of Scripture, other Psalms, celebrate what God does. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God loves to forgive. And while this part of the prayer might be hard for us to do, this is the part where God just really wants us to experience his love. No matter what that thing is that you're struggling with, he wants to forgive it. He wants you to know that it's forgiven so we can confess it. Now, you'll notice, though, the second part of this petition. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I don't know about you, but this is a very confronting line because it seems to tie God's forgiveness of us with our forgiveness of other people. In fact, when Jesus teaches his disciples this prayer in Matthew's Gospel, he says just a few verses later, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Scary stuff. C.S. Lewis says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. We're offered forgiveness on no other terms. There's no hint of exceptions that God means what he says. <laughs> if you're like me, your instinct is to panic at this point because forgiving other people is a very hard thing to do. People have done horrible things to us all. And so your instinct is, okay, well, uh, if I want forgiveness, so... I just have to forgive this person. I'll just kind of have to manufacture it. I'll just convince myself that I've forgiven them and I'll kind of ignore the hurt that I feel. I won't do the hard work necessarily because I just have to forgive them. I'll just find a way to do it. But it doesn't often work, does it? I haven't truly forgiven them. So let me suggest that the way, the pathway to forgiveness is actually to confess our sin. You see, forgiveness is hard because we feel the sin of others more than we feel our own sin against God. But that changes when we do business with God. See, when I'm 
when I confess my sins and I'm reminded of my need for forgiveness and I'm reminded of God's willingness to do it, that changes my heart. It changes the way I look at your sin. You see, I, if you've sinned against me, I, I don't excuse it, but now I understand it. See, I've reminded myself that I'm sinful, that I did the wrong thing. I know the greed and the selfishness that lies within me, that prompts me to sin. So I'm not shocked if you sin against me. In fact, I'm probably just amazed that you got in first before I got you. And because I know that God has forgiven my sin, then I'm able to forgive your sin. I've experienced his grace, and when I'm reminded of that, I want you to experience God's grace too. Hopefully that makes sense. See, when someone has experienced God's goodness, they can't help but give it to other people. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the man who knows he's been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others. He cannot help himself. I saw this profoundly with uh, someone. They'd been deeply, deeply hurt by their spouse in a profound way. But they said to me, I can't wait to forgive them because they'd experienced God's forgiveness themselves and so they wanted to forgive. They couldn't wait. This is a joy for them to forgive. And if you want that, if you want that kind of heart, that supernatural heart, remind yourself of what God has done for you. When we're reminded of his grace, we want to give it to other people. But never get the order wrong. It's never, never that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving. We can't earn God's grace. But his forgiveness inspires forgiveness in us. So if you're a forgiving person, that's proof that God has forgiven you. His grace has worked in your heart. You feel your sin. You've sought God's forgiveness. He's given it. And so now you want to give it to other people. But sin, even though it's forgiven, remains part of our lives and part of our world. And so in the next petition, we, we ask that God will free us from it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is, this is a petition that grapples with the reality of sin, both within us and without, around us. First of all, we pray that our Heavenly Father will protect us from the evil one. 1 Peter 5 speaks of him as our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, so we pray that God will protect us against that. But we also pray against our own evil within us. In the Anglican prayer book, when, when it gets to this petition, it, it explores what it means. and It says we're praying for deliverance from the sin and assaults of the devil, the, the world, the sinful, uh, the, the difficulties and deaths and all of these things, all these horrible things outside us, but it doesn't stop there. It also prays against our blindness and hardness of heart, our envy and malice, the, the deadly sins that we're so prone to, all of those horrible things within us. That's what we're also praying about, that God will free us from those things and change us. You see, the devil's temptations only work on us because we find sin tempting. James 1 says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the devil tempts us because he knows it might work. We're temptable. And so here in this petition, we're praying that that'll change, 
that we won't be tempted by sin. Both the devil, will, God will put a stop to what the devil is doing outside us, but also that God will change our hearts so that sin becomes less attractive to us. But there's something here that I've often wondered about. See, it struck me as odd that we would need to ask God to not lead us into temptation. It's almost as if God could lead us into temptation and we're asking him not to do that. That seems strange to us, right? Because we know that God is good. There's no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 92, he doesn't tempt. James 1 says that no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So, so why would we need to say, lead us not into temptation? Well, while he doesn't directly tempt us, it's clear in Scripture that there are times where he allows temptation to happen. Just think of Jesus. In Mark 1, just after he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, we read, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So God allowed that to happen. Why? Why would God do that? Well, it's helpful to note here that sometimes this petition is worded, save us from the time of trial. Just think about that word trial. It's a little bit like a test, right? A, a trial is a test. Why do we have tests? Why do we have spelling tests or science tests or whatever? What's the point of those tests? Well, it's to help us to know where we're at, to help us to, to think through what we've learnt and what we still need to learn more about. It helps us get a picture of, of what we, where we're at and what we need to know. And I think God allows trials in our lives so that we can know more about where we are in our character and we can know more about who God is and his power. I think the example of Paul is really relevant here. 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a thorn in the flesh that he has, this horrible thing. He calls it a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. It's, it's something that's really bothering him and it can tell that it's spiritual, it's some sort of temptation perhaps, and it's, it's on him. And he longs for it to be taken away. In fact, he, he pleads with God three times, please take this away. Lead me not into temptations effectively. But God doesn't do it. And why? Because God wants Paul to experience more of his power. Verse, uh, verse 9, he says, uh, verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He sends these trials because he wants Paul to know his weakness, but also God's strength. He wants Paul to draw closer to him. And so by the end of the passage, Paul says, when I, I boast in my weaknesses, for when I'm weak, I am strong. He, he's come to almost celebrate his trials because in those moments he draws closer to God and he experiences even more of God's power. So when we ask for God to lead us not into temptation or to save us from trials, we are asking him that he will rescue us and prevent hard things happening to us. But we're also saying, if you choose to send those hard things, then I trust you because you're going to do something in it. Romans 8, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And so we trust that even our most difficult moments, God is working in them. He wants us to know that we are in his hands. And when you think about it, 
this is a really good place for the prayer to end. You see, this whole prayer has been about God, and here at the end we're reminded that we are ultimately in his hands. So as we finish up, I just want to point out a couple of general things around the pattern of this prayer. I hope I've given you a sense of what each petition means and why it's valuable to pray it, but now I just want to zoom out a little bit and suggest three things about this prayer. I want you to notice, first of all, that we pray for God before we pray for ourselves. See, often when we come to prayer, we approach God a bit like he's some sort of cosmic genie. I've got these three wishes, please give them to me. In fact, it's normally more than three. And that's how we pray. Please give me this, please give me that, please help me with this. Now, as I say, it's legitimate for us to pray those things, but I want you to see the order, how Jesus teaches us to pray. The first petitions are about God and for God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And only after that do we get to ourselves. We pray for our daily bread and our sins and our temptations. It's a mindset shift that is very deliberate from God. Richard Koken uh, has written a fantastic little book about the Lord's Prayer. It says, Jesus teaches us that before we can know what to ask for ourselves, we need to learn what to ask for God. For when we think about his reputation, his rule and his plans, it will change what we then ask for ourselves. We like to think that prayer is primarily about getting God to submit himself to us when it is primarily about getting ourselves to submit to him. Prayer is about joining our Father in his day before it is about him joining us in ours. When we pray, it's not primarily about just all of our stuff. It's about God. We pray for him before we pray for ourselves. Now, why, why would God do this? Well, here's the second thing. Praying for God is prayer for ourselves. What I mean is when we're actually praying and celebrating who God is and praying for his will, it turns out that we're actually praying the best things for us too. See, God is our good, our infinite good. And when we experience him, the best thing in our life is to experience him, to contemplate him, to, to experience his power and his goodness. John Piper writes, in view of God's infinitely admirable beauty and power and wisdom, what would his love to a creature involve? Or to put it another way, what could God give us to enjoy that would show us his love? Right? What's the best thing that God could give us? Well, there's only one possible answer, isn't there? He says, himself. If God would give us the best, that is, if he would love us perfectly, he must give us no less than himself for our contemplation and fellowship. To be supremely loving, God must give us what would be best for us and delight us most. He must give us himself, right? The very best thing that we can pray for is an experience of God. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we hallow his name, when we meditate on him, we get him. We experience him. This is the very best thing for us. We start to revel in him and enjoy him. J.R. Packer says the principle of our creation is that, believe it or not, our duty, our interest, and our delight completely coincide. When we pray through the Lord's Prayer, we're reminded of who God is. And that actually, that's the very best thing in our lives. And then thirdly, as this happens, you'll start to see that 
we change. Our prayers change and our hearts change. Simone Wheel writes, it is impossible to say the Lord's Prayer once through without a change taking place in the soul. And I can testify to this. It's not that the words themselves are magical. It's not like some sort of special spell that we pray that changes the universe. It's that in praying through these petitions, we start to see who God is, we start to see who we are, and we start to align ourselves with his purposes. And our prayers start to change as our hearts change. Often I'll come to prayer desperate for something. It's churning me up. I want to pray about it. I just need to get it all out, demand something from God. But I'll try to stop and I'll go through the Lord's Prayer and it changes. So I'm reminded that God is I, you know, I celebrate that God is my heavenly Father. I'm reminded that God is good and great, that in my need I'm going to the one who is kind, who wants to listen and can do something about it. And then I hallow his name. I, I meditate on his character and I'm reminded that I can be confident. And then I submit myself or try to submit to his rule in my life. Okay, uh, this is the thing I'm worried about, but... Maybe you've got a different plan here. May I submit to your will? And by the time I get to saying, here's my, what I need, here's the, my prayer for my daily bread, here's the thing that I'm desperate about, either I'm far more confident that God will answer it or I don't even need to pray it anymore. My whole perspective on everything has changed. That's the beauty of this prayer. It changes our prayers and it changes us. So I want to encourage you this week, pray the Lord's Prayer every day. This month, pray it every day. You can pray it, just the words as they are. It's about 70 words. Sometimes that's all I pray. And even just in praying that, I'm reminded of everything. Or you can do what I say about using each petition as a kind of a launch pad to start thinking about more. But either way, I want you this month to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Let it change your prayers. And as you do that, you'll see God change your heart. Why don't we pray it now? Why don't we all stand and I'll pray this prayer? In fact, perhaps if you know the words, why don't we say it together? Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.